This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, the Majority Report, the Green News Report from Brad Blog, the Colbert Report, PBS's Need to Know, the Onion Radio News, Green.tv, and the Australian Broadcasting Corporation with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from Green.tv. A year ago, we didn't know what is the most important fact about the world. 350 parts per million CO2 is as much carbon as we can have in the atmosphere if we want, as they said, a civilization like the one that we have now. With this challenge also comes great opportunities for us. So as we move ahead to rebuild our economy here at home, Let's do it in a way that also saves our planet as we go forward. I agree with Van Jones. We need to build a green economy that lifts all boats. But I'm here to tell you that some of those boats have holes. Let's start educating and preparing all communities, not some, all the communities, for the future opportunities to come. How green can a city be if it just includes Prosperity Drive and not Martin Luther King Drive? just an equitable climate policy that rebuilds our economy, boosts our communities, and saves our planet. We have an opportunity to do that today. They're going to have to deal with the sheer, unpleasant, tough reality of physics and chemistry. And what physics and chemistry now tell us is that that 350 is as much carbon as we can have in the atmosphere and be safe. If we have not made fundamental change in how we power this world by 2012, if we have not begun that process in a big way by 2012, then the momentum of the feedback loops that are melting the Arctic and releasing methane and all the other things that are going on, those will require too much momentum and we will not stop them. 2012 isn't very far away. It's the next presidential election. Let's don't waste this term or this Congress. Let's make this finally the time that we pay some real attention to the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry and do what needs doing. Thank you all. Bill McKibben, uh, an American environmentalist and writer, uh, considered one of the, the nation's leading environmentalists. He is the author of many books, including The End of Nature, The Age of Missing Information, uh, Hope Human and Wild. Uh, he is also the uh, one of the founders of 350.org. Welcome to the program, Bill. Good to be with you, Sam. So, uh, you know, there was a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about, but um, there has been some, some breaking news uh, over the past uh, 24 hours uh, since we, um, we booked you, and I would love to talk about this. I know you are, um, 
Uh, you've been following this case uh, quite closely. Uh, Timothy DeChristopher, uh, he is an environmental activist. He's just been found guilty of interfering with a, an onshore oil and gas leasing, uh, with the, I guess with the Onshore uh, Oil and Gassing Lease, Leasing Act. Uh, tell us about this. Tim's a good fellow. He's from the state of Utah, and there in Utah, inspired, you know, by the uh, ghost of Ed Abbey and the very real presence of people like Terry Tempest Williams, he uh, he did something spontaneous and I think pretty funny and creative. He went into one of these oil and gas leasing auctions that the BLM Bureau of Land Management runs. And he picked up a paddle and he bid on a number of parcels of oil and gas leases that the federal government was auctioning off. And uh, he won them. <laughs> he didn't actually have the millions of dollars that he needed to pay for them. And it, uh, you know, uh, so it slowed down uh, through a little sand in the gears of this operation, which, you know, is uh, against the law. And also, uh, in many ways, um, a very useful thing to be doing, since we need desperately for climate reasons to keep that carbon in the ground. But yesterday, a, uh, the federal government brought the full and awesome weight of its power to bear on him. He was uh, convicted on two felony counts in a Utah courtroom. He faces uh, 10 years in jail when he's sentenced in June. So, you know, in a country in which uh, we've managed to uh, indict uh, precisely zero bankers uh, for their role in pretty much upending the world's economy, we can be proud that our federal judiciary under uh, Attorney General Holder has managed to um, at least get the scalp of one person who slowed down for a few days the efficient uh, selling off of our landscape to the highest bidder. Uh, we we actually have a clip of his uh, speech that he gave after the um, that he gave after the, um, the 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 trial, and we'll play that at the end of this interview. Um, and uh, but uh, so, w what are the implications of this for the for the the broader uh, movement? I mean, um, do you think that? I mean, it was interesting because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was your piece uh, that you had written about money pollution. And um, uh, let's 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 segue into that for a moment, if we could, because you wrote this piece about the um, about the, the the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and um, it, it, just give me some background on that. You talk about sure. the, the the amazing sure. influence it has because of its its money. Yeah, these this guys these you know if 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 money pollution were a real were a visible phenomenon, the biggest smokestack would be on top of the. Uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce building directly across the street from the White House. These guys boast about spending more money on lobbying than anybody else in Congress. They do lots of things with it. They helped fight the health care plan, for instance, but an awful lot of their attention goes to making sure that we, uh, well, to making sure that the planet warms up as quickly as possible. Um, they, uh, uh, <laughs> just as a one small example, they filed a series of briefs with the EPA last year uh, demanding that they take no action on climate because if, as they pointed out, the planet warmed, human populations uh, could adapt their physiology and behavior in order to deal with the extra heat. Um, these guys are far out and far right and far powerful. 
and and so yes, I'd wrote I'd written a piece uh, explaining this, and that among other things seemed to have been enough to earn me a uh, earn our group 350.org a uh, a spanking from Glenn Beck last uh, last Friday night up on his famous board went our logo, and next to it, curiously. A, uh, uh, a hammer and sickle, uh, uh, yes. something I hadn't really, I mean, there's a kind of, uh, I don't know what, archaic quality to uh, the idea that your opponents are communists. Um, uh, we're clearly his opponents, but, uh, you know, what we're, what we're for are uh, businesses nimble enough to adapt to uh, the new world, which is supposed to be the great virtue of capitalism and not businesses that require uh, endless subsidy and protection from the federal government so they can keep doing dangerous things forever. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, congratulate, uh, you on making it to the chalkboard. That's, uh, that is a, that's quite a feat, uh, because, um, you know, Glenn Beck is, is so crazy that, um, at least he's, you know, it's it's sometimes impressive just to see that he actually has the capacity to absorb that there are certain organizations out there that aren't uh, completely fanciful. So at least uh, at the very least we know that he's um, he's on uh, some type of wavelength. And um, I wanted to also just to congratulate you on having your own new flag. I guess the the hammer and the sickle. Uh, there you go. But um, but is it a uh, a slight change uh, in strategy and tactics and we're at a time where there was uh with a with a democratically controlled congress uh both a house and a senate with a, a democratically controlled executive branch we were unable to pass any type of climate change uh legislation uh whether or not it was an even anemic by the by the end of that process yeah look Clearly, the methods that the big environmental groups were working using didn't work. And, you know, for 20 years, there's basically been this kind of elite strategy. We're going to work a little bit behind closed doors on these complicated schemes like cap and trade, and we'll, you know, co-opt enough of the business guys and we'll convince enough of the elites that it's in their interest and we'll give Goldman Sachs enough skin in the game and, and we'll get something through. Whether or not it was a sound strategy, in the end, it was uh, a failed one. I mean, the Senate last year refused to even vote on uh, that cap-and-trade bill, and then we saw what happened in November's elections. That strategy is over. If we're going to get anything done about the biggest problem we've ever faced, we're going to have to go from the grassroots and build mass movements that take real uh, that build real political power, that don't pussyfoot around. And part of that is, you know, these kind of big campaigns we're running across the country about the U.S. Chamber of Commerce this year. They're going to be uh, already thousands and thousands of businesses coming out to declare the U.S. Chamber doesn't speak for me. We can't take their money, but we can soften up their political credibility. And part of it's going to be more militant tactics, like what Tim DeChristopher did. Uh, I don't think that's anywhere near the last of this kind of civil disobedience you'll see. In fact, it's not the first. I mean, three weeks ago, Wendell Berry, are probably our greatest living writer in this country, uh, sat in in the uh, governor's office in uh, Frankfort, Kentucky, until the governor agreed to at least go look at the devastation caused by coal mining in his commonwealth. Uh, you know, 
um, time to step up this fight. We're losing. We're losing badly. The Arctic's halfway melted. Uh, there's really not much reason to uh, 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 wait much longer, I think. I could never pretend that I don't love you. You could never pretend that I'm your man. That's exactly the way that I want it. It's exactly the way that I am. And you call me in the morning with your troubles. Taking it downtown every night. I could never place the stars at night above. Got my hands on the ground and you know I'm right. You ain't so long. You ain't so long. Another study, this one released at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science over the weekend, warns governments they need to prepare for population growth in developing countries, leading to strains on global resources. Researchers at the nonprofit Population Council gave quite the stunning quote, The Earth will become unrecognizable by the year 2050, they said, as growing incomes lead those in developing countries to adopt a resource-intensive Western lifestyle and a Western diet, requiring more meat production just as climate change is predicted to seriously impact agricultural yields. More warnings that we can immediately begin to ignore. And another cheerful study from the American Society meeting predicting 50 million environmental refugees will flood into the global north in 10 years by the year 2020, citing a sharp increase in the flow of migrants from countries plagued by war and drought over just the last year and spurred by events like months of riots that led to unrest in Tunisia. The researchers predict more of the same in the next 10 years as extreme weather events cause crop failures and food shortages. That's definitely a warning that needs to be ignored immediately. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Specifically about the, the, you know, writing about the idea of, of the chamber who, um, uh, who you, you, I mean, the title of your of your piece from uh, Tom's Dispatch is "Money Pollution." Uh, it, it's just it's interesting to me because uh, people like Lawrence Lessig have been out there for three or four years now, um, uh, arguing that at the end of the day, our political system is fundamentally dysfunctional because of the influence of major corporate m- uh, money, and yep. uh, I wonder if there isn't a coalescence uh, of uh, of similarly like-minded activists uh, across the spectrum of of issues starting to coalesce around this notion that nothing will get done unless in some way we can depollute uh, our government of this big corporate money well Sam I think that there's uh, I think that that's 
probably true. I also think that it's very hard to take it on as an issue in the kind of abstract sense. I think it's when people see it wrecking the chances for something that they care about, in this case dealing with the largest environmental problem we've ever faced, that it begins to really come into context. I, I, there, there hasn't been a kind of mass groundswell around uh, money and politics in the way one might have hoped. And uh, uh, maybe if we work at it by talking about precisely what it is doing, we can get there through almost through that back door. Interesting. And um, tell us just a little bit uh, about uh, 350.org. I'm not sure if everyone in my audience is familiar with 350 the, is, no, it's, what a, uh, it's, a, it's a weird name for a group, and it takes its name from what the scientists at NASA told us three years ago was the most carbon we could safely have in the atmosphere, 350 parts per million. We took it as our name partly because it's scientifically the most important number in the world now. We're already at 390, way past it. That's why we're seeing the funky weather that we're seeing. Um, but we also took it because Arabic numerals translate across linguistic boundaries, and we needed to do global organizing. I mean, they call it global warming for a reason. And we've been pretty successful at that. But we have essentially nothing in the way of resources. We managed uh, last year, for instance, on one day in October, to have 7,400 demonstrations in 189 countries, what CNN called the most widespread day of political action in the planet's history. So uh, we're at least beta testing the idea that there's uh, room for a mass movement around uh, the need to change, to get off fossil fuel. It's exciting to see it happening, especially since most of the support comes from people in places that we wouldn't ordinarily think of as environmental. I mean, mostly we work with poor, black, brown, Asian, young people around the world because that's mostly what there are, you know. Um, uh, it's very exciting to see. It's also very sad to say that we are still losing and losing pretty dramatically, and we're going to need to make this thing much bigger and stronger if we have any hope of standing up to the financial power of the most profitable enterprise humans have ever engaged in, the fossil fuel industry. Uh, I, you know, There's no guarantee we're going to win this. If you were betting, uh, well, you probably wouldn't bet our way, but that's really not a bet you're allowed to make considering the stakes. So we're going to fight as hard as we can and at the very least uh, give these guys uh, uh, a little pause in their... Uh, in their um, in their fat cat uh, uh, heyday, you know. Here, here is one of the things that makes it very hard for me to contemplate environmental issues. Um, mm. When do we know, and what if we have already lost? I mean, uh, to a certain extent, uh, oh, I tend it's to. All, so it's all relative, right? We've already raised temperature one degree. And the scientists tell us we've got another degree in the pipeline from carbon we've already emitted. So the planet's going to be a much warmer place than it's ever been during human civilization. And that's going to be difficult. Uh, in fact, really difficult. It's going to be a difficult century. No way around it. We got a taste of it last year with the floods in Pakistan and the fires in Russia and the run-up of food prices. What the scientists also tell us is if we don't take action pretty fast really fast before the century is out before it's halfway out we're looking at five six seven degrees um that's not difficult that's probably impossible uh probably the first thing that will really challenge our ability to continue having 
civilizations in the way that we've known them. So those are the stakes, and we don't know exactly at any given moment where along the line we are, but all you have to do is sort of look at the satellite pictures of the Earth and see the Arctic uh, getting uh, more blue and less white every year, and you've got a pretty good visual correlation for just how screwed we are. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I've, uh, you know, I have been uh, somewhat of a uh, James Lovelock fetishist uh, to a certain extent, uh, who is a, um, who is a, uh, a scientist who found the hole in the ozone layer, and he f- feels that um, we may be past that uh, point of no return, and what we'll be looking at on some level is uh, not the end of humanity, but the end of civilization as we know it. And I'd say it's a very real possibility unless we get our act together really fast. Right. And uh, uh, that's, you know, that's what we're desperately trying to do. And we really need everybody. <laughs> Look, there is, in the end, uh, no other issue. Uh, if we don't get this one solved and solved fast and everything else that we work on uh, is uh, moot. And that's why the stakes are so high and the urgency is so strong, and it's why there's going to be a lot more people willing to do what Tim DeChristopher did. And at the end of the day, um, what we're talking about here is not something that can be done um, in terms of just simply changing individual behavior. This has to happen on a policy level, doesn't it, the changes? That's right. That's right. You have to, You essentially, you have to stop letting the fossil fuel industry put carbon into the atmosphere for free. I mean, Exxon's business model is uh, we get to use the atmosphere as an open sewer for free. That's why they made more money last year than any company in the history of money, you know. Um, and changing that is the sine qua non of doing anything about this, and that's where the fight is. That's what the uh, oil and coal companies are uh, so far been able to prevent happening. And, uh, you know, They've got the lead because they've got the money. We better find a different currency to work in. And I think bodies and spirit and creativity are about the only currencies we've got, so we better put them to use. Our bodies still ask photographs. We'll bang the ground to swallow us to press our lonesome silhouettes into the dirt. Reflecting off your face, casting colors on your cheeks. I saw you shining, saw you shining brighter than before. Well, autumn bears a bitter song, creeping out across the yard and weeping through the alder branches overhead. My guest tonight has a new book about Antarctic penguins. If I like his answers, I'll throw him a mackerel. Please welcome Fen Montaigne. Hey, Mr. Montaigne, good to see you. Now, sir, your new book is called Fraser's Penguins, A Journey to the Future in Antarctica. Who is, who is Fraser? Bill Fraser is a scientist who's been in, uh, on the Antarctic Peninsula for about 35 years studying there and he's witnessed this very, very rapid warming that has had a bad impact on the beloved... What warming? What warming? That would be global warming. Excuse me, sir. 
Global warming is no longer happening. Well, I, I, no. I don't know how to break it. It was very popular in 2007. I believed it You're then right. because Al Gore's movie <laughs> made money, but now he's getting divorced, so it doesn't... <laughs> You guys felt like, did you guys feel warm out there today when you're waiting for the show? You know, the People have spoken, sir. The strangest thing is happening, even despite this new Congress, many of whose members don't believe in global warming. No. It's still going on. And it's... But the American people voted that it's not. Well, you know what? Who says that nature has the last word? And I'm afraid if you go to these polar regions, like where I spent five months in Antarctica, warming is very rapid. These ice-dependent Adelie penguins, the classic tuxedoed penguin. The Adelie penguin? Yeah, absolutely. The lovely tuxedoed little bird. You spent five months there. I did, five months. What, what part of your body did you miss feeling the most? <laughs> the odd thing is, it wasn't that cold. I think that's kind of the point. This is the most northerly part of Antarctica, but there were days, the high temperature when I was there was 52 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, that should not be. That's warm. Why should I care about these penguins? Okay, sell me on this, because... Uh, you know, we've lost penguins before, sir. <laughs> the great, the great auk. Are you familiar? Absolutely. 19th century, uh, uh, Atlantic penguin. Right. Gone. Right. Civilization did not fall. Well, there's a difference with the great auk where they were basically hunted to extinction. What we're doing now is we are changing the climate under which civilization has arisen over the last 12,000 years. In essence, our long, the long arm of industrial civilization has reached down there, warmed up the winter temperatures by 11 degrees Fahrenheit, melted a lot of the sea ice, and these penguins in this part of Antarctica are dying out because they don't have a, a, a feeding okay, platform. Okay, so they go. What, what do they eat? Uh, they eat krill. Okay, shrimp so we krill. have more krill. Actually, you're picking between krill and penguins, right. and you're saying penguins are more valuable than krill because they're pretty. But I've got to tell you something about the krill. They, too, are dependent on ice, their life cycle, and they're in decline as well, which has hurt the penguins. So there's this whole cascade of effects that is happening. And I think an interesting part of this story is that Bill Fraser, the scientist I write about... Who's been down there since... 1974, off 74. and on. Hasn't okay. spent the whole time there. And That's his, good, because uh, uh, he would, you could he get would, ice madness. Absolutely. <laughs> he and his colleagues are like sentinels. They are seeing these rapid changes at the poles that are eventually coming our way. Now, we can pretend they're not, but they are. It's the law of physics, and we're putting all... How long before these... Uh, supposed <laughs> events in Antarctica because I've never been and I don't even know there is an Antarctica because I've never been, never seen it. How long before they affect me? Uh, How long before we, like, we feel it and the oceans rise up here? I think this century you're probably looking at melting of the Greenland and the West Antarctic ice sheet. You're probably looking anywhere from three to six feet in global sea level rise. So, But when? Well, when? It's hard to say, but sometime within the next hundred years. Uh, let's say uh, 2100. 2100. I'll yeah. be dead. Well, you'll be dead, but you have kids? Yes. Grandkids? They will, according to you science people, evolve gills. So that actually they won't, I'm afraid. They better evolve some scuba gear if this keeps up. I mean, basically, another important point, Stephen, is Antarctica is the greatest repository of ice on Earth. 90% of the Earth's ice is in Antarctica, up to three miles deep in ice. What the warming of the Antarctic Peninsula represents is the first breach in the citadel of ice. If Antarctica begins to melt in the earth... Citadel, of, citadel ice? of ice? Yeah. Isn't that where Superman lives? He, he did live there once. 
But if this starts to melt, I mean, you are looking at major, major sea level rises in the coming centuries. It's not in your lifetime, but in your, your uh, descendants' lifetimes, for sure. Well, uh, Mr. Montaigne, it's an important message. I wish I believed it. Um, thank you so much for thank joining you, me. Thanks. As we uh, say goodbye, we will run that audio from Timothy D. Christ, uh, Christopher, uh, his pronouncement after uh, being uh, basically found guilty and um, sentenced, we don't know yet, but possibly up to 10 years of prison. This is him outside of the courtroom just yesterday in Utah. with joy and resolve. You've shown that your power will not be intimidated by any power that they have. And that's the most important thing that has happened here this week. Because everything that went on inside that building tried to convince me that I was alone and that I was weak. They tried to convince me that I was like a little finger out there on my own that could easily be broken. And all of you out here were the reminder for all of us that I wasn't just a finger all alone in there, but that I was connected to a hand with many fingers that could unite as one fist. And that that fist could not be broken by the power that they have in there. That fist is not a symbol of violence. That fist is a symbol that we will not be misled into thinking we are alone. We will not be lied to and told we are weak. We will not be divided and we will not back down. That fist is a symbol that we are connected and that we are powerful. It's a symbol that we hold true to our vision of a healthy and just world and we are building the self-empowering movement to make it happen. All those authorities in there wanted me to think like a finger. But our children are calling to us to think like a fist. And we know that now I'll have to go to prison. We know that now that's the reality. But that's just the job that I have to do. That's the role that I face. And many before me have gone to jail for justice. And if we're going to achieve our vision, many after me will have to join me as well. Someday you'll know I was the one, but tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun. Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com. Thank you.
I'm Allison Stewart, host of Need to Know on PBS. Today we're going to try a little experiment. It was inspired by something that happened at one of our partners, Grist.org. There was an online, ongoing debate over two environmentalists with wildly opposing views on the subject of world population and its effect on climate change. But rather than have the two of them on at the same time to yell at each other and me play cop, we thought we'd ask them basically the same questions so you can hear for yourself how two different people can look at the same data and come up with opposing views. Here we go with interview number one. Robert Walker, Executive Vice President of the Population Institute, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Mr. Walker, why do you think World Population Day went relatively unnoticed in the United States? I think there's a belief in many parts of this country that the population problem, to the extent that it existed 30, 40 years ago, has gone away. Certainly, as you look at the world, there's been a very significant drop in fertility rates, uh, and that has translated into a drop in projected population growth rates. But what most Americans do not understand is that population, global population, is still growing, uh, and that by mid-century, we'll have an additional 2 billion or 2.5 billion people on the planet. Uh, I suspect that a lot of Americans really don't fully comprehend or understand or are even aware of those numbers and what they mean for the future of the planet. So what do those numbers mean? Well, I think we have to step back for a second and take the historical perspective. Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, human population was 1.5 billion on the planet. And at the end of the 20th century, we had 6.0 billion people. So during the 20th century, human population prospered. It quadrupled in size and living standards rose. But now, during the 20th century, we lost about 20% of the world's forest cover, probably about one-third of the ocean reefs, almost half of the world's wetlands. At the same time, we've had a, an enormous loss in uh, biodiversity. In the last half century or last century, we've created large dead zones in the ocean. Many major rivers have been reduced to a trickle. Water tables in many areas across the globe are falling dramatically because we're pumping too much water out of the ground. So we start the 21st century with 6 billion. We're headed by mid-century to about 9 billion people. So what type of environmental hazard does that pose to the planet? That's why I think we have to be very concerned, because we're already at a stage where we're putting tremendous stress on the world's uh, ecological systems and, and straining the world's biocapacity. Adding another 2 billion or 2.5 billion more people to the planet in the next 40 years presents an enormous challenge. What about the argument that we've already had the huge growth, that this growth that we're seeing future projected is actually a whole lot less than what we've seen? Well, uh, fortunately for us and for the world and for the world's environment, uh, population in the 21st century will not grow as much as it did in the 20th century. But the question of population is far from over. Are you concerned about feeding all these people? Are you concerned about clearing water? I'm concerned about all the issues, both the environmental impact, uh, but also the impact upon human sustainability. We simply don't know whether we will be able to feed 9 billion people. That's a very open question. Women in Niger, on average, have over 7 children. Now, currently right now, there's a very significant drought uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, if we don't know how we're going to feed Niger today, 
does anyone really know how we're going to feed Niger 40 years from now when it has more than three times as much as what they have today? There, There's enough food, in theory, to go around the world. Isn't the issue about the way it's distributed and the distribution of wealth not necessarily the number of people? Some of this has to do with, with uh, our diets. Some of this has to do with the question of, of waste. And yes, it's theoretically possible that uh, you could spread all the food around the world today and everybody would be fully fed. But keep in mind that just two years ago, world grain reserves were nearly exhausted. And as a result of that, we saw a doubling in the price of, of wheat uh, and corn and a tripling in the price of rice all in the course of two years. If you have in the world today ever-growing numbers of people, who are living in urban slums in the developing world and who have incomes of less than $1 or $2 a day. And when the price of white rice or wheat or corn doubles, it puts a tremendous impact upon their budgets and upon the ability to feed their families. But keep in mind that we're facing the challenge of climate change. Overpopulation, again, too many people chasing too few resources, uh, has enormous implications for both the environment but also for human welfare. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Thank you very much. That was Robert Walker. Now, on to Fred Pierce. Fred Pierce is an environmental and investigative journalist. His books include Confessions of an eco Center and People Quake. While acknowledging the challenge of overpopulation, he says doomsdayers are moving the discussion in the wrong direction. Fred Pierce, welcome to the Climate Desk. Do you dismiss population growth as having an effect on climate change? Yes, its effect on climate change is going to be small. Small compared to the other things that we're doing. Um, even if there were half as many people on this planet as there are now, we couldn't carry on um, generating our energy in the way we do and expect to have a stable climate. Um, we've got to do something radical with the way we create our energy, the way we use our energy as well. Um, Having an extra billion or even two billion extra people, especially poor people, is not going to have much effect on that. It's going to have a very marginal influence. So it's not a zero effect, but it is quite a small effect compared to, as I keep saying, the consumption patterns, the way we generate our energy. That's the big issue. So why are so many environmentalist groups concentrating on population control? I mean, what could be their motive? Locally in parts of the world where population is still growing very strongly, much, you know, parts of Africa in particular, there are very strong local issues. So destruction of forests, often more to do with actually commercial development mm -hmm. of the land rather than, if you like, poor people trying to get it, make a living. But at the global level, um, population isn't, isn't really where it's at. What do you believe is a realistic way to think about population growth? Now, we need to stabilize our population. I think that's absolutely true, and I don't dismiss people who worry about population as an issue. But we can look forward to peak population, and I think that allows us to think about all the other things, the, the things that we do need to fix. If you're thinking about climate change, and in the back of your mind is, is the idea that population is going to carry on up, up, and up forever, then it's very difficult to think about how you can fix climate change and many of our other environmental threats. 
the received wisdom has been the population is going to go on up and up and up. But if you look at the numbers, it really doesn't look as if that's going to happen. If we rethink it, just change our mindset so that we can see population peaking, it really helps us think about those other issues because we can see that, you know, we can come up with solutions which would be durable and won't be undermined by constant population growth. Do you think that talk about population control is subtly racist or bigoted? Yes, I do. I think it's unnecessary and and it doesn't address the big issues. Um, Look, um, as of now, the world's poorest half of the population, that's about three and a half billion people, the poorest 50% on this planet produce 7% of the carbon emissions and their ecological footprint for most things that you want to look at is similar. Even if you double the numbers of those people, which we're probably not going to do, but even if you did that, you know, they're, they're con- the, the actual impact they would have on the planet will be quite small compared to the impact of the smaller numbers of, of rich people on the planet. So, yes, of course, poor people want to get richer, but we really have to look at the impact of the rich on the planet. So, as I say, I don't, you know, population is not the number one issue now. It's relevant and it's important. And in some countries, growing population is still a real threat to their, if you like, their prosperity within those countries, particularly in parts of Africa and maybe parts of the Middle East. Uh, but globally, I think consumption is, you know, we, we are defusing the population bomb. We haven't begun to defuse the consumption bomb. It's The Onion Radio News. A company halts dumping hazardous waste into a nearby river after realizing it's an auditing firm. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The Columbus, Ohio-based firm Russo & Glazer voluntarily ceased pumping pollutants into the Ohio River today after suddenly realizing they're an accounting operation specializing in outsourced independent auditing services. Senior partner and CPA Dale Russo made the announcement earlier today. The auditing firm of Russo & Glazer is happy to say that from this day forward, we are in 100% compliance with any and all EPA clean water standards. The firm also announced plans to halt all use of child labor in its Philippine glassworks by the end of the calendar year. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News online at the Onion. Once upon a time, there was a king in his castle. He lived in a beautiful world with high mountains, great seas, and marvelous animals. 
thought he was a good king, but didn't really care about his kingdom. He just wanted to be rich and lead a wealthy lifestyle. To make the things he wanted, he built great factories. And to travel faster, he built roads, railways and airports. This needed a lot of energy, so the king drilled deeper and deeper for oil, and built more and bigger power stations. He thought that things had never been better. But, gradually, his kingdom began to suffer. Large forests were felled, huge areas became like deserts, and even the climate itself began to change. He thought he could control everything, but slowly, the king realized that he must be kinder to his beautiful world or it would be damaged forever. He came to understand that he served his kingdom as much as it served him. So, he made energy from the force of the wind, the power of the water, and even the heat of the sun. He tried to save energy and think of the future, not just the present. And he, and his sons and daughters, hoped that this would be enough. So did the kingdom recover? And does a story end happily ever after? No one knows yet, because you and I are still part of it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. And now for something completely different. Dr. Reese Halter is a star in America. He lives in Los Angeles. Our producer, Joel Werner, has described Dr. Halter as a cross between Keanu Reeves and Steve Irwin, times ten. His latest book is called The Incomparable Honeybee, but his concerns are global. Reese Halter. Sometime late in 2012, our population will surpass... 7 billion. How we source energy, how we feed ourselves, and how we protect our wild ecosystems filled with medicines will ultimately define the longevity of our species on Earth. Let's examine a couple ecological catastrophes in April of 2010 and their direct impact on Australians and Americans. On April 3rd, the Shenyang-1 freighter carrying 65,000 tons of coal crashed at full speed into the Great Barrier Reef, 
spilling approximately 975 tons of engine oil. The freighter was taking a shortcut to China, 14 kilometers outside the authorized shipping lane. In order to clean up the spill, toxic oil dispersants were used. Two and a half weeks later, BP's Deepwater Horizon platform in the Gulf of Mexico exploded, gushing over 775 million liters of petroleum into the ninth largest body of water on the planet. Eight million liters of oil dispersant were used to deliberately disperse BP's oil, and it spread known cancer-causing polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons throughout the Gulf. BP's accident could easily have been obviated if they too weren't racing to get at the deep sea oil. Did you know that coral reefs are the largest non-human made organisms on our planet? Adding a whopping 190 tons of new growth a year. They are easily equivalent in biological diversity to that of the Amazon rainforest. Globally, there are about 500 species of exquisitely mottled tapering shells of cone snails. One species from the Philippines contains a toxin that's a hundred times stronger than morphine. The drug Prealt, derived from this cone snail, is effectively treating pain including phantom limb pain, and it's non-addictive. Currently, we know of about 1.6 million different species of life on our planet. The oceans probably contain another 25 million forms of life awaiting discovery. Are you aware that the soft corals from Northwest Australia produce the strongest anti-cancer compounds ever found? Ocean-derived pharmaceuticals are so important that Merck, Lilly, Novartis, Pfizer, Hoffman Roche, and Bristol-Myers Squibb have all established marine biology divisions. Caribbean sea squirts are offering promise for those diagnosed with melanoma and breast cancers. Sponges from the Florida Keys have been improving leukemia treatment since 1969, and research from sponges led scientists to develop the blockbuster AIDS drug AZT. Australian sponges have given us a potent weapon to fight falciparum malaria, a lethal and drug-resistant strain of this infectious disease. Coral, incidentally, is the most effective treatment in regrowing human bones and it requires no pharmaceutical immunosuppressants. Australian scientists are developing new sunscreens from the Great Barrier Reef. I guarantee you that if you take your family for one snorkel trip or one deep sea dive on the Great Barrier Reef that it will change their lives forever. The coral reefs are our grandchildren's legacy and without a doubt, all coral reefs must be protected globally. Tropical rainforests are Mother Nature's other treasure trove of medicines. 
Venom from the Brazilian Viper led to the blockbuster drug called Capitan, which successfully lowers blood pressure. Plant medicines also reduce the risk of cancers, heart disease, liver disease, and respiratory disease. And they are helping to combat drug-resistant diseases like TB and malaria. Five of the world's top 30 drugs are derived from fungi, penicillin being the most noteworthy. Merck's blockbuster drug, Lavastatin, comes from a soil fungus, and it's used to lower cholesterol. Tropical forests are being felled at an astounding rate, a thousand times greater than those which naturally occur. Approximately 142,000 square kilometers a year. That's equivalent to the area of Switzerland and the Netherlands combined, or the size of a football field lost senselessly every second of each day each year. So each year, we're losing at least 27,000 unrecorded species of life with unknown medical properties. And let me remind you that 25% of our medicines come from tropical plants or animals. Have you ever visited a tropical rainforest? The cacophony of life, especially at night, is truly unforgettable. Have you ever seen a YouTube of a honeybee doing a dance and communicating crucial information to its sisters? It's magic. Did you know that honeybees are responsible for producing every third bite on our dinner plate? They contribute at least a quarter of a trillion dollars a year to worldwide economies by pollinating almost everything from apples to zucchinis, including pollinating alfalfa and clover for the beef and dairy industries, as well as pollinating cotton for our clothes. Bees in Australia produce 6 million kilos of honey, tons of wax, and powerful medicines. Honeybees are essential for everyone's health and well-being. Yet around the globe, honeybees are dying by the billions. Scientists believe that the leading cause of declining honeybee populations, a mysterious disease called colony collapse disorder is from massive overuse of synthetic toxins like pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and miticides. We're using 2.3 billion kilos of pesticides each year, and it's wiping the bees off the face of the earth. Help our bees by not poisoning them. The oceans, in addition to providing us with some incredible medicines, also feed three and a half billion people daily. Over the past 150 years, we've fished out the oceans. Underwater no-take reserves in New Zealand, New England, St. Lucia, Florida, and the Bahamas clearly show us the ocean's awesome ability over time to regenerate its fish populations. Fish biologists predict that 50% of the oceans will need to be placed in no-take reserves in order to feed 10 billion people by 2050. Humans are remarkable problem solvers. 
We have found cures for polio and smallpox, landed on the moon, and likely within a decade, we will make a tremendous transition away from being totally dependent upon fossil fuels as we've entered the age of energy transformation. For any addiction, and make no mistake, we are all currently addicted to oil, gas, coal, and plastic. We must first admit it. The second step is remembering that for every problem, there are at least three solutions. And when 310 billion in tax credits globally are directed away from oil, gas, and coal companies and redirected to kickstart renewable green energy technologies, we'll have not only a very bright future, but millions of jobs to look forward to in the next 10 years. Let me remind you that disruptive technology has occurred at least twice in the past 100 years benefiting humankind. For instance, Ford's Model T disrupted the horse and buggy, and the silicon microchip disrupted millions of stenographers, enabling each of us the opportunity to own a personal computer. Renewable green technologies are beginning to disrupt our oil, gas, and coal energy dependencies. Change is opportunity in disguise, and business leaders like Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates, Bank of America chairman Chad Holliday, and top venture capitalist John Doerr, and others in the American Energy Innovation Council all agree that the U.S. government must significantly increase funding for more efficient green technologies and develop a national plan to deploy them. The developed world has excellent universities with access to a powerful pool of brain power. Coal-fired power plants each use at least 8.8 billion liters of water each year. And Southeast Australia, the southern half of America, northern China, and elsewhere are drying out rapidly. Moreover, each year, between 5 and 10 tons of mercury vapor are entering Earth's atmosphere from burning coal. 18 months later, it rains onto the Arctic ice. Arctic ice is rapidly melting and mercury, a lethal nerve poison, is entering our oceans and our food chain. Oil-based plastics are choking the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. America produces 6.8 billion kilos of plastic annually, yet only 1% of it is recycled. Human ingenuity has begun to help us get away from oil-based plastics and protect sea life. The chemical titan DuPont is now using corn-based polymers as a substitute for conventional plastics. The international agriculture conglomerate Cargill has developed a replacement for oil-based foams in cushions from soya beans. Every hour, the sun bathes the earth with as much energy as all human civilization uses in an entire year. 
innovations in the burgeoning solar industry have an enormous role to play in the carbon-free green energy field. General Electric and Google have partnered together on a smart electricity grid, enabling users to manage electricity more efficiently with significantly lower emissions, while America begins changing over its petroleum-based energy to green technologies. Efficiency is the essential short-term bridge to our best friend in the 21st century, innovation. All wild ecosystems are under siege. Our grandchildren are counting on us to do the right thing. from Collegeville, Minnesota. I've uh, got two things calling about. First, uh, I'm a student at St. John's University in Collegeville, and I just wanted to give a shout-out to all those um, young people, or actually any age, who are looking for an amazing conference to go out to this, uh, this coming year. I heard you mentioned PowerShift. It's, it's a great conference pushing people to shift the power to a green economy, which is exactly what we need. So I just wanted to give a shout out to that. And second, I just want to once again say, I love what you're doing. I love the show. And whatever format you have to do, whether it's a two-part show or a one-part show, I think they're great. Um, just keep up the good work. Hey Jay, this is Liz from Brookings, South Dakota. I have really enjoyed your show. I've been listening to it about six months now, and it's been really informative for me. I've been a conservative most of my life, and I just really liked hearing the opposite side of things. And I look at things a little bit differently now. I can't say that I'm a total liberal, but I really enjoy your show. Um, this last episode of The Feminism really disappointed me. I felt like you dropped the ball. If you wanted to do an abortion episode, that would have been fine. That could have been this episode. But to say that that's your feminist attempt, I really am disappointed in that. I have one more question. With your religion episode, you, it was fine. I'm actually a Christian, but I don't have any problems with anybody that chooses not to be. That's up to them. But the one question I have is, I think it was even you yourself said, after you've claimed on previous episodes that you're an atheist, but you said... God forbid, or heaven forbid, or Jesus Christ. I don't understand why that gets me, but it does. And if you have an explanation, I'd really like to hear it. Thanks so much for the show. Hey, Jay. It's Jay Spinoza from Denver, Colorado. I'm calling to make an activist call to action. I've organized the U.S. Uncut Action and for Monday, March 28th. We will be targeting Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo paid zero in taxes and last year due to its acquisition of Wachovia. We will be gathering at 1050 17th Street, Denver, 80205 at 12 p.m. <clears throat> if you want more information, you can go to usuncut.org, go to the Actions tab, 
Click on Denver, March 28 tab. Hope to see everyone there. Bye. Hi, Jay. My name is Jeff, and I'm a liberal policeman from Florida. Yes, we do exist. I love the show. We're actually fighting our governor and actually a Democratic senator who wants to outlaw our pensions, but that's not why I'm calling. He's taken to using a guy named, a guy who goes by, Mumia Abu-Jamal on your radio, on your uh, Left podcast. He was born Wesley Cook. Uh, he immediately found Islam in prison and changed his name. But he was convicted of killing Danny Faulkner, a policeman who pulled over his brother. I'm not going to debate the case with you because courts have had about 30 years to do that. But he was arrested wearing a shoulder holster in possession of a murder weapon with five spent casings of a gun he owned. He's lost every single appeal. And I'm opposed to the death penalty as a policy, but this murderer helps make the case for it. The cop killed had a name. His name is Daniel Faulkner. He left behind a wife. He was only 25 when he was murdered. Putting anything that this murder, Mia, who produces on your podcast, cheapens it and makes me sick. There are hundreds of independent liberal radio shows and podcasts out there that you could choose. And any one of them probably did not kill a policeman. So please choose one of them to replace this piece of garbage, Wesley Cook. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And I've gotten such a great uh, number and diverse collection of uh, voicemails that I have no time to talk about anything other than them for the past couple of shows, which has been great. So I appreciate everyone calling in. In response to the conservative female caller, uh, first of all, I think that's a first, so that's exciting. Um, She had a take on the feminist episode, which is the only um, negative response I've gotten to that episode. Uh, Oh, wait, no, one person commented on the blog, uh, the content was great, but broads, really? And, And so I was excited that I only got one humorless response to that. So uh, I I was kind of putting that out there as a test balloon to see if the feminists in the audience had a good sense of humor or not. And I think you guys totally passed with flying colors. Uh, If if I'm, if I only got one response to that, then, uh, then I think that's a win. So, you know, she, uh, speaking of disappointment, she, she said she was disappointed in the show. I was disappointed that she was disappointed in the show, but didn't tell me why I would, I would have loved to hear her explanation. I will take a guess though, because I probably agree with her. If well, if my guess is right, then I agree with her that um, that the show was titled feminism, but it was like three quarters about abortion. And obviously, that's not the only feminist issue out there. Uh, so, assuming that that's what she meant, I couldn't agree more. At least that's what I mean, and I agree with myself. So that's a totally valid point I just made. And uh, a show about feminism should be about a lot more than just abortion. There, you know, equal pay rights and uh, lines at women's bathrooms are too long, and like all the you know bread and butter issues you guys care about. So th- this plays into what I've talked about before. Is it's really hard to make an episode about feminism because they're just people don't talk about it. Um, you know, I listen to like 50 shows on a weekly basis, and feminism as a topic doesn't come up, and it's tough. So. You know, I, I do my best to find clips when I can, but um, the reason that I was able to make a show at all is because in the early days of this current Congress, the Republicans went crazy talking about 
all sorts of extreme things having to do with abortion. So people talked about it a lot. And so then I got a lot of clips about it. You know, that's just how it worked. Um, so she kind of intimated that maybe I should have just had it be an abortion episode. And so I could have titled it that, but then maybe it wouldn't have quite fit to have a couple of those clips in there that weren't about abortion. So then that's, you know, cutting those out needlessly when I could call it feminism and include them. And theoretically, I thought everyone would have been happy. And, and just knowing that, yeah, if I could have more clips on a more diverse range of feminist issues, uh, that would be great. I would love to do that. I just don't have them to play. So as always, I'm a, just a slave to the content that's available. Her other comment was about why atheists use uh, religious-based swear words and that she's, uh, you know, at least mildly offended by that. And my response is that I'm kind of offended by it too, but for the opposite reason. Because, uh, you know, I've been an atheist since I understood what religion was. I've never had a period in my life where I was religious or went to church or anything. Um, but I've always had religious-based swearing as part of my vernacular because it's so ingrained in the culture that that's just how people talk. It has, you know, there's no religious basis for saying those things. It's just what people say in American English language. We just don't have a great set of alternative uh, swear words. And so, you know, kind of my whole life, I've been a little irked by that myself, not because I'm religiously offended, but because I'm secularly offended that we don't have a great set of words to replace those with the, that you could say without sounding goofy, uh, basically. So um, that's my response to, to that question. I don't know if it really uh, is a satisfying answer, but there you go. And then finally, my, my last uh, response to the liberal policeman asking me to stop using uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal on the show. I think it's a really, really interesting conversation. Um, you know, if you've been a listener to the show, I, I know you've heard me do this before. I would love to have a debate about this. I've gotten like one or two emails about this before, but now that I have a voicemail, we can make it a, you know, show-wide conversation. I'm perfectly open to having this conversation. My my response in the past to, to the emails emailers has been that, uh, you know, I, I don't care who the messenger is. I'm only concerned with the message. And, you know, and one person said, you know, hey, you're a liberal show. You wouldn't have Glenn Beck on your show if he was spouting a, a bunch of liberal talking points. You know, if he had a big, like, change of heart and was, you know, railing against the corporations, uh, you know, you still wouldn't use him because he's Glenn Beck. And I thought, yes, I would. Are you kidding me? If Glenn Beck changed his mind and became like a liberal lion for, for liberal causes? I mean, yeah, of course I would. Why wouldn't I? And so my thought on Mumia Abu-Jamal, like uh, I'm, I definitely want to take his crime um, out, completely out of the conversation as the policeman suggested. That's a debate not worth having. It's not, it's not relevant to my thinking on it. My thinking is I simply don't care who he is or where he's coming from if he has good opinions that are worthy of being on the show, then I'm happy to put him on. Um, and I recognize that people, not everyone agrees. So definitely if you have uh, opinions about that, uh, give us a call, give your opinion, and uh, and we'll see where it goes from there. I'm, I'm always open to listening to the audience uh, on uh, anything to do with the show, any suggestions you guys have. So we'll see what happens. The, although the one thing I will say about him is that when I started playing his clips, I did make sure from the beginning that I've all uh, to say 
to include in the show the clip at the very end of his messages that says who he is and where he's coming from because I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want to hide that. I wanted to make sure it was in the show so that you heard it um, and there was no deception involved so that if it were to spur uh, controversy, as it has to a very, very small extent so far, um, you know, then at least I was upfront about it. So that's it for today. Let me just thank a couple of members really quick. Nicholas F. signed up for a socialist monthly membership back on May 15th last year, and Catherine S. signed up for a leftist yearly membership on February 26th. So huge thanks to Nicholas and Catherine and all of the members and donors who make the show possible. I obviously couldn't do it without you guys. Thank you very much. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. You can donate your Twitter account to us. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And you can get details about the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All of that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 11 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out